You're listening to Plenary Session. Plenary Session is a new podcast at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy. It's the place we talk about everything that's important and nothing that isn't. I'm your host, Vinay Prasad. In today's episode, we're going to talk about a few things. First, Based on a listener request, we're going to talk about the relationship between the price of anti-cancer drugs and their efficacy. Next, we're going to talk about the main feature, which is the Echelon 1 study, Rentuximab Vidotin with chemotherapy for stage 3 or 4 Hodgkin's lymphoma. We're going to talk about a new paper out by one of my former medical students, now interns at OHSU, which was published in The Lancet Oncology, and I'll leave that to the author to explain more about we're going to have an interview with Dr. Martha Garrity, who's an evidence-based medicine expert and general internist here at the Oregon Health and Science University. Stay tuned. But first, a plug. If you like this episode and you like this podcast, go to iTunes and give us five stars. It really, really means a lot. If you have ideas for how we can improve, for topics you want to have discussed, go ahead and send us an email at plenarysessionpodcast at gmail.com. And if you want to follow along, follow us at plenary underscore session on Twitter. I'm back. So, since last week, I got a request from a listener. The listener asked me, do you have any data that links the relationship between the price of anti-cancer drugs and their efficacy? And I said, as a matter of fact, I do. That's a topic that I took a deep dive in with my friend and colleague, Sean Mylenkoti, who's at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. We published a paper in JAMA Oncology in July of 2015 entitled, Five Years of Cancer Drug Approvals, Innovation, Efficacy, and Costs. Let me take you through that. We wanted to study what justified the high price of cancer drugs, and there were few putative reasons that had been offered by the industry, and we wanted to put those to the test. So, the three things we tested were, one, the novelty of a medication. Is it the case that drugs that operate via a new mechanism of action cost more than drugs that operate via a tried-and-true mechanism? In other words, does a novel first-in-class BTK inhibitor cost more than the fourth BCR-ABLE inhibitor? Part of what goes into that is the recognition that drug discovery is exploring an uncharted territory. Finding a novel compound is like being an explorer in the 1300s discovering a new continent. Um, It takes risk. It takes a sense of adventure to try to get there. Um, Meanwhile, finding a Me Too compound is a lot like being a map maker for a city. You're refining a city map. Sure, you might add something, subtract a detail, clarify a potential question about a map, but you really had a starting point. You had a map to go off of. And when it comes to drug development, I think it's a lot more difficult to find novel compounds than it is to find next-in-class drugs. You really have a template. And some next-in-class drugs are so similar to the parent compound that they've entered uh, quite a nasty bit of litigation about that. The next question we had was, does the regulatory pathway, the regulatory endpoint that determines drug approval, have anything to do with the cost? See, drugs can come to market based on largely three types of regulatory endpoints, measures of tumor shrinkage, like the response rate, measures that capture the time until a tumor gets bigger, 
or if a patient dies before it gets bigger, a composite endpoint like progression-free survival, for instance, that's the second class. And the third class is measures of overall survival or quality of life. I think as a doctor, we all will agree, um, doctors and patients and all stakeholders would agree that overall survival and quality of life is the most important thing. Um, and progression-free survival and response rates are surrogates for survival. And arguably, it's a little bit more of an effort to show PFS benefit in a randomized trial than response rate in an uncontrolled study. So we thought that OS would cost the most, PFS would cost the second most, and response rate would cost the least um, in line with the burden of regulatory approval. And the third thing we looked at was if you were approved based on PFS or if you were approved based on overall survival, is it the case that drugs that improve survival more cost more? So for instance, if you were a 50% improvement in survival, did you cost more than a drug that merely improved it 12% or 14%? Same for PFS. So what did we do? We looked at every drug that was approved by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration Oncology Drug Products Division between January 1st, 2009 and December 31st, 2013, five years. And we found there were 51 drugs approved for 63 indications. And they were broadly distributed a third, a third, a third response rate, PFS, and OS drugs for the basis of their approval. The first thing we found, when it comes to novelty, 21 out of 51 drugs operated via a novel mechanism of action and the rest were next in class. This is 40% novel, 60% next in class, or me too. I think this fits with the reality of the cancer drug landscape, that there are just so many Me Too drugs, and we've talked about a bunch of them on this podcast already, including that PARP inhibitor from a couple episodes ago. So, do novel drugs cost more than next-in-class drugs? Well, unfortunately, that's not the case. There was no difference in price between novel drugs, which average about 120 k per year of treatment, and next-in-class drugs that average 116 k per year of treatment. Actually, oh my gosh. I got that backwards. It was $119,000 per year treatment for the next in class and $116,000 for the novel. But it really doesn't matter. There's no difference in price there. Next, what about the basis for regulatory approval? Did response rate lower the price of these drugs? Because those drugs are getting to market often based on uncontrolled studies. And response rate is easy to show, relatively. Well, we found that wasn't the case. Response rate drugs were priced at $137,000 per year of treatment. Overall survival drugs were $112,000 per year of treatment, and PFS drugs were $102,000 per year of treatment. In other words, the response rate drugs cost the most, and PFS drugs and OS drugs were about the same price. Lastly, we analyzed whether drugs that improve survival more or less cost more or less. Essentially, we found there's barely any slope going on. There's a very low R-squared, which tells you that very little of the variation in drug price is explained by how well the drug works. And drugs in the cancer space cost a lot. And if they work a little bit better, they pretty much continue to cost a lot. There's not really a big difference between, between how well they work and how much they cost. So for the listener who, who phoned in and told me about this question, there's your answer. Uh, the high cost of cancer drugs is not explained by novelty, it's not explained by the regulatory basis of approval, and it's not explained by how much drugs improve outcomes. What is it explained by? I fear that it is explained by solely what the market will bear. And this is not a normal market. This is a, a market where many payers have one hand tied behind their back, and they have to pay for a drug. They cannot negotiate the price. They cannot say no. That's not a market in any functioning sense of the word. 
And it leads to opportunism, and it leads to, I think, the terrible and unsustainable situation we have today. So that's it. Five years of cancer drug approvals, innovation, efficacy, and cost. Check it out. Jam Oncology. All right. New England Journal of Medicine. January 25th, 2018. Brintuximab vidotin with chemotherapy for stage 3 or 4 Hodgkin's lymphoma. The Echelon 1 study. I know what some of you all are thinking. Wait a second. You said you will be talking about journal articles from the last week. Echelon 1 is from many months ago. Well, you got me. I read many articles over the last week, and frankly, nothing interested me. There was nothing that I could really sink my teeth into and, and try to tell you something interesting about. So then I said, you know what? On weeks like that, I'm going to go into the past. I'm going to pick a gem of an article, or perhaps less than that, something not quite a gem, and I'm going to take a deep dive into it. Echelon 1. I have just 10 things to say about this study. Now, of course, listeners should know, this is a randomized controlled trial in the frontline Hodgkin's lymphoma setting, which tests brentuximab vidotin plus AVD versus ABVD, which has been the standard of care for many years. This is the, the trial that led to regulatory approval for brentuximab vidotin in the frontline, also called Etcetris or A or AAVD, uh, as an option for patients with advanced Hodgkin's lymphoma. Listeners should also know I don't like this study that much. I think it's lacking. I think it's emblematic of the corner cutting we have more and more of in oncology. And I think there are a lot of lessons we can take from it in terms of how to design and conduct better clinical trials, trials that are actually relevant for our patients. So let me take you through it. Number one. This is from the very end of the paper. We thank dot 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 X and Y a fire kit for writing support during the development of this manuscript. Okay. I'm going to make this my number one every time I see it. I do not like medical writers. If you're the author of a paper, you have to write your own papers, okay? The medical writers are frankly not acceptable. And stick around for the interview with Martha Garrity. We're going to talk a little bit more about that. And we're going to talk about some more concerning aspects. Number two, you got to know a little bit more of the background about this drug. Brintuximab vidotin is a monoclonal antibody that hits CD30. It's tethered to a vidotin molecule, a microtubule inhibitor. So it's an antibody drug conjugate. The drug is known for neuropathy. I think that's the side effect that many practitioners know about it. The drug was previously approved in lymphoma, a couple of lymphomas, um, and Hodgkin's lymphoma, particularly as a salvage agent. And in the consolidation setting, which is 16 cycles post auto transplant. In that setting, by administering additional chemotherapy, you could prolong PFS, but not OS. Now, listeners of this podcast will know what I think about a drug that at a very high cost, in this case, a few hundred thousand dollars, prolongs PFS, but not OS, and adds to treatment duration. Okay, this is discussed in a paper in Nature Reviews Clinical Oncology that Bishal and I did called Combining Drugs and Extending Treatment, Why PFS is Not Sufficient. And I think all readers should take a look at that paper. So that's the background. The next thing you might wonder is why is this a trial of AAVD, brentuximab plus AVD, versus ABVD? Why not add brentuximab to the backbone standard of care ABVD? Well, the short answer to that is in a phase one study by Connors and Eunice, they had tried to combine brentuximab with ABVD, but while it could be safely combined with AVD, when you combined it with ABVD, 44% of patients experienced pulmonary toxicity and there were two deaths, which led the authors to conclude it cannot be combined safely with ABVD. 
So that's why we have this study. The other thing you need to know about this study is what's at stake. A lot of market share is at stake. When you have a lymphoma that is highly curable in the frontline setting, which Hodgkin's lymphoma is, you don't have a lot of patients who need autotransplants and 16 cycles of brintuximab. You don't have a lot of patients who need salvage. Of course, I'm speaking relatively among all the cancers out there. You have a lot more patients who need initial therapy. That's especially true in a curative lymphoma. So by going for the frontline setting in this all-comer trial, which I actually think is you know, not the ideal way to have done it. I think you should have gone after a high-risk population first. But by going in an all-comer trial, what you're doing is you're trying to bite off the largest bit of market share you quite possibly could bite off with a CD30 antibody. Point number three. The endpoint of this study is a poor, poor-quality surrogate endpoint. It's called modified PFS. It means it's a composite endpoint. It means the time until the patient dies, if that's unfortunately the first endpoint, has progression or recurrent disease, or if the patient scores Doval-3 at end-of-treatment PET and receives anti-cancer-directed therapy for that PET scan finding that is coded as an event. Does the patient have to have a biopsy-proven, relapsed, or recurrent, or refractory disease? The answer is no, which is a major omission and a major problem of this study. I'm going to read a couple quotes from a very provocative letter to the editor written in blood. Connors et al. incorrectly claim that it is well accepted to initiate second-line chemotherapy or radiation therapy on the basis of end-of-treatment FDG PETS results by citing three studies to support their statements. In contradiction to the claim by Connors et al., current guidelines recommend biopsy of residual FDG avid lesions before treatment, before initiation of second-line therapies. This statement is supported by recent studies showing a high false positive rates of residual FDG avid lesions after treatment of Hodgkin's lymphoma, with false positive rates up to 66%, with, in the majority of cases, therapy-induced inflammation being responsible for residual FDG activity. Okay, this is problematic. You need to biopsy to prove there is residual disease and you're not merely radiating inflammation. And that's particularly important in an open label study like this where investigators may be tacitly or unconsciously inserting bias into their use of anti-cancer directed therapies as the endpoint. Four. This choice of endpoint is actually very important because the p-value for the primary endpoint of the study is point. It's hinging on the cusp of significance. And in my back-of-the-envelope calculation, if I subtract patients who received end-of-treatment therapy, even radiation therapy, that subset, from the primary endpoint, I think this trial would tip and become non-significant. So the use of modified PFS matters. This endpoint matters a great deal. The study hinges on that. Of course, overall survival, which is the gold standard and most important endpoint, has not been improved in this study. Five. Even if you believe that modified PFS is an important endpoint in and of itself, I think when you start to analyze the cost to avert the primary endpoint, you would find it is horrendous. The cost of AAVD in a, in a back-of-the-envelope calculation I did with Satish Sandberg from Johns Hopkins is 75 times the cost of ABVD, and you have to keep in mind we're adding in the cost of growth factor support. The use of AAVD transforms a highly effective curative treatment that can be obtained for less than $4,000 to one that costs upwards of $280,000. That is a heavy price to pay for a drug that does not add any overall survival. Six, 
when people talk about this study, they say, you know, this isn't a pet adapted study. That's a limitation of the study. Since Rathel, we now adopt a pet adapted strategy in many cases in Hodgkin's lymphoma. But you cannot fault these authors for not doing that because we didn't have that information back then when they designed Echelon 1. But I would say that's an incorrect characterization of this paper. This paper did proscribe PET CTs after two cycles, and it did pull people off if you were Doval 5, but it didn't pull you off if you were Doval 4. So it's not correct to say it isn't PET adapted. It is PET adapted. It's just wrongly PET adapted. It pushed patients through on, who had Doval 4 PET scans. That is something that is outside standard of care. I don't know anyone who would do that. I think most of us would pull those patients off. And one of the things that does is it increases, enriches the population for risk of failure to provide you primary endpoint events at the end of this study. I think that's deeply problematic. We need pet adapted trials that are pet adapted to what people are actually doing, not wrongly pet adapted. Seven, I had this as a separate point all along. Overall survival is absolutely unchanged between the two arms. And we do not yet know enough to know about the impact of quality of life. Eight, the side effect of AAVD is neuropathy, and I'm going to quote from a paper I was reading online. Grade 2 or higher peripheral neuropathy can be a disabling AE, which should be particularly avoided in these young Hodgkin's lymphoma patients. I think when we talk about a novel cancer drug replacing a drug with neuropathy, we're so quick to say neuropathy is a devastating side effect. When we're talking about replacing an older drug with a drug that has neuropathy, we're so quick to downplay the importance of neuropathy. But I will say, as a clinician, I consider neuropathy to be a lousy side effect. It's a debilitating side effect. It is a devastating side effect in certain cases. I'm not sure it is a better side effect than the bleal lung toxicity side effect, which honestly, in clinical practice, occurs quite seldom, quite rarely, and particularly rarely in the era of pet-adapted therapy and the omission of bleomycin on subsequent cycles. So I think on this trade-off of neuropathy versus pulmonary toxicity, it is not clear to me that pulmonary toxicity is necessarily worse, and it is certainly not clear to me that the real-world pulmonary toxicity from bleocontaining regimens is like this study. Jim Armitage and colleague point out in the ASCO post that 442 out of 662 patients had neuropathy in this study. Okay, point number nine. Some people read this study to mean that this is a good therapy for the elderly if it's not a good therapy for everyone else. I think that's a problematic interpretation of the data. I point out that the hazard ratio for the primary endpoint, which I don't think is a good primary endpoint, but in the over age 80, in the over 60 age group, that hazard ratio is 1.01. It is not clear that the novel regimen is superior in that elderly age group. 10. I'm going to conclude by just reading a quote from Jim Armitage and colleagues that appeared in the ASCO post, which I agree with. We believe that at present it is too early to confidently recommend AAVD over ABVD in patients with newly diagnosed stage 3 and 4 classic Hodgkin's lymphoma, even in subsets of that population. They actually go on because they're, they're kinder than I am. Again, we applaud the effort underlying Echelon 1 study and we look forward to long-term data, especially with regard to overall survival, end quote. I'll just point out that, well, even that data will have to be taken with a grain of salt because of some of these problems, particularly the problem of pushing patients through who are Doval 4 after PET 2. Uh, it'll be difficult to reconcile these data where you did that. Um, this is the so-called hardwired bias, and I've, I've discussed this at length in the literature in a, in a paper in the Mayo Clinic Proceedings. What is my overall takeaway message for this paper? Uh, Hodgkin's lymphoma is an important cancer. 
It is a historic cancer. It has a very interesting history that's discussed very nicely in Vincent DeVita's book, in a book by about Henry Kaplan that came out uh, from Stanford University. Um, it's worth reading and thinking about. Um, patients with Hodgkin's lymphoma often do very well, but there are high-risk groups in whom we need better therapies. We need therapies that improve overall survival in high-risk and vulnerable groups in the relapse setting. Uh, we don't need drugs that outcompete older, cheaper, proven drugs on the basis of flimsy, invented surrogate endpoints um, using contrived clinical trial design that does not mirror clinical practice conducted in global settings where there's a number of other questions about the outcomes based on region that this was conducted in that I didn't have a chance to get into. We need clinical trials conducted in representative settings that measure overall survival in this space. And what they should be doing is targeting high-risk groups who are at higher risk of relapse or recurrence and have higher and poorer five-year overall survival and try to improve those numbers. But unfortunately, this is the difference between, I think, industry-sponsored research, which seeks to maximize market share and research that we actually need that would actually help clinicians and patients at the bedside. And this is part of the reason why, in a number of publications, I continue to champion the idea that we really need a large, broad, publicly funded, non-conflicted trials agenda. Um, the only frontline randomized control trials in Hodgkin's lymphoma we're getting just can't be like Echelon 1. We need better studies. So those are my thoughts on Echelon 1. Um, not good enough for drug approval, not good enough to change practice, sorry. Um, and a missed opportunity based on the number of patients that enrolled. And Hodgkin's lymphoma patients certainly deserve a whole lot better. I'm back here in Plenary Session HQ with Derek Tao. He's now an intern in internal medicine at OHSU, and he's got future plans to go into hematology oncology. Isn't that right, Derek Tao? Uh, we'll see. We'll see about that. Are you keeping an open mind? <laughs> yeah, undifferentiated a Und little bit. Pluripotent, a pluripotent resident. That's what I like to hear. <laughs> Derek, you and I have worked together before on some prior papers, have we not? Mm-hmm, that's true. We've investigated financial conflict of interest. That's true. Among Twitter. Yeah. And what did you... Uh, what did you take away from that project? That project kind of introduced me to how prominent Twitter is for like the medical field right now. Mm -hmm. I, I kind of, in my generation, there's not a lot of people use it, using it. Are you saying I'm old? <laughs> <laughs> but it's picking up steam, I think, particularly in kind of some professional spheres and medicine's kind of growing with that. And um, definitely it was interesting to see how prominent it is in oncologists and hematologists. Prior, prior to your investigation, you, you didn't use Twitter. I had made one in like 2011, but it was just kind of there, just not really using it really. I see. Yeah. And were you surprised by some of our findings in that paper on conflict of interest? Absolutely, yeah. It was pretty surprising to see that a majority of the uh, hematologists, oncologists we investigated had conflicts of interest. Approximately 80%, I believe. Yeah, I think it was. And it was higher than the average bear. It was higher than the average rates of conflict among uh, prior studies that have shown uh, or taken a broad look at community doctors. Mm -hmm. And then we did that follow-up study where we actually coded the content of the tweets. You recall that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it was kind of surprising. To, well, surprising or maybe not surprising to see that most of them um, had kind of positive endorsements to say about their the ones the um, drugs they were conflicted about. Conflicted about, about yeah. Yeah, it was, concerned me a bit. But now you're here to talk about a paper that you and I wrote together that came out in Lancet Oncology just this week. Right, 
right? Yeah, just this week. Now, which medical writer did we have help us write this paper? Dr. Tao. Uh, I don't, I didn't, you didn't mention a budget to, uh, to uh, hire a medical writer. <laughs> so we didn't use a medical writer. Yeah. Nope. We wrote it ourselves. Yep. Well, that's yeah. unusual. <laughs> so. I suppose so, yeah. So what's the title of this paper? Choice of control group in randomized trials of cancer medicine. Are we testing trivialities? And, uh, and what's the takeaway for the audience? What should they know? Well, the takeaway broadly is that we talk about four recent studies um, in, in cancer. Um, where the test of control group was really kind of um, suboptimal for answering the question most pressing for clinicians mm -hmm. and oncologists. Mm -hmm. By that you mean um, that the control arm uh, was beaten in many of these cases, and I think in all four cases, by right. the investigational arm, but it wasn't really a practical question because that control arm was practically seldom in use. Absolutely, yeah and may have been inferior to other options at the time. Mm -hmm. Right. Now, somebody who would justify such a control arm would say something like, look, by using this control arm, I can prove to you the new drug is better as quickly as possible. Um, is that kind of an argument that you would accept? Look, this is just gonna speed things up. I don't, I would say it's a little bit hard to accept because I mean, ultimately, we have to recognize that patients are providing so much of themselves for these trials in mm -hmm. terms of their time, um, kind of efforts, and uh, ultimately their lives. Mm -hmm. So in some ways it's hard to accept that it's a trial that doesn't really provide um, very much insight to practicing oncologists I see. into how to treat and patients with their disease. Yeah, Answering a question that doesn't have practical importance to patients um, you view as a, um, a waste of their time. Unfo unfortunately, yeah, it, it seems squandered. It, it would be hard to talk to that patient afterwards and say that your time in this trial resulted kind of in minimal uh, gain of an, uh, insight into the field. Now, there were four studies we looked at. We looked at uh, ibrutinib and Waldenstrom's. We looked at ibrutinib and CLL. We looked at a study of nivolumab versus decarbazine and melanoma. And we looked at a study for multiple myeloma. Of those four studies, does one of them stand out in your mind as um, really emblematic of the problem? I think. I think I would talk about the um, the study in CLL of abrutinib versus chlor chlorambicil, mm -hmm. um, particularly because that control arm of chlorambicil is a monotherapy that's based on U.S. registry data, very very infrequently used, mm -hmm. approximately so, four point five percent or so. I see. So that there is actually uh, um, empirical evidence that it was infrequently used, and there's also evidence that it had been beaten by other more commonly used regimens. Yeah. And that was nicely noted in a letter to the editor in the New England Journal of Medicine by Dr. Sharman and colleagues, right? also from Oregon. So there you go, Oregon winning, <laughs> winning times two on this issue. Yeah. What are your other thoughts about this paper? I think for our paper, um, I mean, early on as a med student or a trainee like myself, um, it's hard to say often, like you take an NEJM trial, um, and often it seems like it's kind of above any criticism. Um, they're often multi-center, blinded, randomized control trials. Mm -hmm. And absolutely, they're like technically sound. But um, we're not statistical experts, and often that's not where our kind of input has mm -hmm. value. Mm -hmm. But it is important to recognize that um, the clinical question that they're being asked, or th that is being asked, is kind of important to make sure that that's relevant to current practicing oncologists. So what you're saying is 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 very interesting, and it sounds like what you're saying is um, 
you've taken away the fact that just because it's in the premier journal doesn't mean it's above question. And one should always approach research from the point of view of a clinician asking, is this trial relevant to the questions that I'm faced with? Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And then uh, you write that the solution to the problem is for regulatory agencies to demand that registration studies compare novel drugs to the most frequently used therapies in that setting. Real world data can help to clarify which control groups are representative. So you've actually provided a path forward that we could use this real world data to actually help advise investigators what the control arm could be. Ultimately, I think if we were starting fresh, we would want a regulatory body that has some more power to say, hey, this trial isn't asking the critical question or, it's at, or you're comparing the drug in, of question to a inferior control arm. A I straw mean, man even. Yeah, exactly. And, yeah. and kind of to be able to put, put the squeeze down a little bit on the um, trialists. Perhaps some of the listeners who are experts in regulatory law could comment, but I think there are some existing statutes by which the FDA can exert the legal authority to ensure that patients in control arms are not deprived of a standard of care they otherwise would receive. And I think the other thing we could say is that there has long been a proposal that the FDA have enhanced authority around comparative effectiveness so that they can not only ask whether or not drugs are safe and effective under some theoretical idealized conditions, but rather safe and effective when compared to existing treatment options or compared to other drugs that are emerging. And, and future legislatures may consider uh, such legislation. Hmm. Yeah, That would be good to see. Any last thoughts? No. Dr. No. Tao. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, and then the other thing I wanted to ask you, Dr. Tao, when, when I told you you are gonna give the plenary session, is this what you had in mind? Uh, this isn't what I had in mind, but I'd say in some ways it's better because if this were a real plenary session, I'd probably pass out from the crowd <laughs> nervousness. Maybe a little bit more nervous, huh? Absolutely. But being in a, dirty, a dirty office is quite, uh, quite uh, puts you at ease. Mm, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Dr. Derek Tao. And I know you're a busy man. You're doing this while you're on call. Uh, you have to get back to patient care. So thanks for taking five minutes out of your day uh, to tell us about this really great paper um, that you really brought to fruition. And I thank you for your hard work on the paper. Thank you very much. And future program directors, you should be aware that Derek Tao is an excellent resident and uh, I will only be angry if you recruit him to your program because I want to recruit him to mine. So thank you. I'm back here in plenary session HQ with Martha Garrity. Martha Garrity is a professor of medicine at the Oregon Health and Science University. She's a practicing general internist and does lots of research at the intersection of evidence-based medicine and clinical epidemiology. Martha, thank you so much for joining us today. It's great being here, Vinay. I always enjoy talking with you. And I always enjoy speaking with you as well. And usually I don't tape record those, uh, those discussions, but this time is different. We're, there's, gonna be, there's gonna be a tape. So we have to be cautious what we say. <laughs> um, let me give the listeners a little bit more background about you. Uh, you did your medical training at Northwestern University in Chicago. Uh, you did your intern internal medicine internship uh, at uh, at uh, Medical Center Hospital of Vermont. Um, you did your residency at Oregon Health and Science University, and then you spent some time as a Robert Wood Johnson uh, uh, fellow, uh, and you did uh, both an MPH and a PhD uh, at the University of North Carolina. Um, was your PhD in epidemiology? Yes, my well, my 
MPH was in epidemiology. I, I did the Robert Wood Johnson Clinical Scholars Program with an interest in medical education and improving the educational system. Uh, my mentor and fellowship director uh, had an MPH in epidemiology and suggested that I do some coursework in epidemiology to learn research methods in epidemiology, and I figured I might as well just enroll in the program. I see, and, and make it formal. And make it formal, uh, because I needed to know that information as a general internist, which was my career trajectory. Um, after I completed that, I still had an interest in learning more about education, particularly cognitive psychology, uh, educational methods and so talked to people over in the School of Education. They asked me, are you going to do more research? And I said, of course. And they said, by the time you do these courses, you might as well just do a degree. I see. So I ended up enrolling in the School of Education and getting my PhD in education. That's wonderful. So how important do you feel uh, evidence-based medicine is to the future generation of physicians? I think it's incredibly important uh, and have dedicated my career to uh, advancing education in evidence-based medicine. It should be a basic science. Mm -hmm. I see. So we, um, uh, we may not be approaching it in, in sort of the right order. Do you feel that there are um, specialties within medicine that do a better job of evidence-based medicine than other specialties? Or, or should we not name names on this podcast? Uh, we might not want to name <laughs> names, and I would be conflicted because I am a general internist. I'm going to tell you an anecdote. Um, I've been a long around long enough that uh, I was uh, taking workshops and uh, being a visiting tutor at the McMaster University mm -hmm. workshop on reading the literature critically and was there at the time that David Sackett and mm -hmm. Gord Guyot mm -hmm. spent a lot of time thinking about what do we call this new movement? Right. And what was brilliant about what they were doing is taking core concepts from epidemiology and clinical research and trying to package those core concepts in a way that is useful for clinicians. Um, and I always tell people that, that I take away the three questions that they always started with. Um, do I believe the results of this study? Is mm -hmm. it valid? Is it valid? What are the results? How do I understand those results? Um, and more importantly, can I explain that to my colleagues and, and patients? And then finally, do these results apply to the patient in front of me? Mm -hmm. And that was the brilliance of what they were doing uh, at McMaster University and educating others to do that uh, so that we could then move forward as research moves forward, incorporating what makes sense to incorporate in our care and having informed discussions with our patients about do, does this matter to me, and how much does it matter to me, and what should I know about this treatment decision I'm making or this diagnostic test result that I just heard about? Yeah, and I think um, th those three questions frame it very nicely and, uh, and also convey the fact that, you know, this is work. Uh, it takes work to, to understand these questions, to, to seek the answer. Um, it's why, you know, 
our work as a doctor is never done. We've never fully educated ourselves. There's always something more to learn. Um, you know, we do this conference every week with the fellows where the fellows are asked to present some patients they have and to explain what they're gonna do for the patients and why. And the fellows know by now, I hope they do, that uh, you know the last thing I wanna hear is I'm doing X, Y, and Z because Dr. So-and-so does it this way in their clinic. Because my next question will be is, well, why does Dr. So-and-so do it that way in their clinic? And if they don't have the answer, I'm not gonna be happy about that. Absolutely. But, <laughs> and, 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 not just to, and not just because I wanna to, to be mean, uh, but because I want to push them to, you know, that's where you actually learn to practice medicine because you don't take it for granted that simply because a physician you know, whom you may, you may like a great deal, simply because they do something, uh, that's not justification to continue it. You really have to seek out that information to see if it persuades you. Um, does it meet your standards of evidence? Uh, and, and how can you convey what is known and unknown to the patient in a way that really facilitates shared decision making? Yes, I agree. I agree completely. Um, the, the one caveat I'll say is people ask me, are you being evidence-based? If you go out and uh, learn what's available in the literature that answers your question and come back with, well, there's been no studies in this area or there have been a few studies, but high risk of bias, so low quality right. of evidence. Right. And I say, yes, you can be evidence-based and you can still be um, informing patients. You just have to be upfront that we don't have research to guide us in this decision. Right. This is my experience or this is the experience of the consultants I've talked to. Right. And making it in that situation, it truly has to be a shared decision. And um, it, uh, uncertainty bothers us as clinicians, and it bothers patients even more. Um, and when we're not clear um, about what we know and don't know, patients assume the worst or they assume the best. I, you know, I had this experience yesterday where a patient came in and. Um, had some recurrent pain and a lesion in an area where he had uh, classic Kaposi sarcoma. And I said to him, this does not look like a recurrence at all. I think this is a bone spur. However, let me have you see dermatology and oncology again, mm -hmm. just to make sure. Right. Well, he heard this as, I have recurrent Kaposi sarcoma. Right. Came in yesterday with his son to hear the bad news. Right. And it was oh, like, no, 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 no. This was just you know, it's one of those diseases that I wanted to lower my probability of recurrence even further by getting other opinions. Getting more information. Yeah. Absolutely. And you know, the other thing I want to point out um, to listeners is that there are situations in medicine where even though we may not have data, there are some general principles that we've long subscribed to. And I'll give you one example. Um, and you can tell me if you agree or not. But I think a, there's a general principle in oncology that um, when you start to rely on lower levels of evidence, such as phase two data, or perhaps not even that, but hopefully let's just say phase two data, uncontrolled studies, um, that's more acceptable to do in later lines of therapy when people have exhausted more proven options and for patients in whom they're more symptomatic or perhaps have more severe illness. And that is more inappropriate to do in cases of early disease states where there are many options if patients are asymptomatic. For instance, those are situations in which you really want to be more cautious because we know that the sad truth of biomedicine is that you know, much of what we do that's merely bioplausible 
probably doesn't work. And you probably don't want to take that chance when someone feels well. Do you feel that this is there's some truth? This is uh, a general principle. I think that that is a general principle. And what has made me more energized in we really have to educate physicians about evidence-based medicine and understanding studies that are published and being able to interpret them uh, and explain them to patients uh, is the fact that there are more and more studies that you're describing with early disease courses or affecting large populations where the quality of the evidence or the risk of bias in the evidence is such that yeah, poor quality, it, high risk of bias. High risk of bias. Yeah. And, and these drugs are getting approved now, whereas in the past, we would pause and say, well, let's wait for the second or the third randomized control right. trial. Now to we're confer. lucky to get even one randomized trial. A absolutely. And as I've heard you speak about uh, quite elegantly, a lot of those Thank early you. studies. Listen, you should know I, I paid you to say that. So, <laughs> <laughs> A lot of those studies use surrogate or intermediate outcomes as opposed to outcomes that matter to me as a clinician and to my patients. So listeners, I haven't told them yet, but you know, you spent some time as a co-editor-in-chief of a, a very um, esteemed journal, the Journal of General Internal Medicine, between 2004 and 2009. Are, are my facts correct? Yes, your facts are correct. I was co-editor with uh, Bill Tierney. Oh, uh, with Bill Tierney. Oh, that's yes. wonderful. Yes, um, and thank you for calling it an esteemed journal. <laughs> it is an esteemed journal. I think it's a, it's a, it's a journal that has published many uh, thought-provoking articles, um, and by accident, a couple of my articles. But no, but many thought-provoking <laughs> no, no, no. thought articles. Um, but uh, I wanted to ask you about your time as editor. Um, and I wanted to ask you something specific, because I read this paper that you've been a part of. Uh, it's entitled Editorial Peer Review, Editorial Peer Reviewer's Recommendations at a General Medical Journal. Are they reliable and do editors care? Now, we talk so much about peer review, and I've heard people say that it's the, uh, it's the worst form of scientific vetting, except for all the others, uh, a bit like democracy. Um, but I think many people know that, you know, and I've joked about this, I, I think, on Twitter in one place, that you can hear all sorts of facts these days, and many facts are, are no such thing. And peer review has many, many flaws. I mean, there are many limitations to it. They're well recognized. Um, but one would hope that peer-reviewed journal articles have slightly more credibility than the average fact floating around the internet. But that doesn't mean they're all good or valid. But um, you did a very interesting study where what you looked at was many manuscripts, thousands of manuscripts that were handled at JGIM between 2004 and 2008. And many of these manuscripts were sent out for external peer review. And what you were, what your question was, was whether or not peer reviewers um, made a similar recommendation for the manuscript. Do they vote to accept or reject similarly? And here's what I found quite provocative, that the Kappa statistic, and I'll explain to the listeners what Kappa statistic is. So when you compare um, different people scoring uh, uh, a manuscript for acceptance or, or, or rejection, um, you can use something called percent agreement. How many times do they agree? Um, but one of the flaws of percent agreement is if the majority of manuscripts are rejected, which likely is the case, um, there will be high percent agreement simply because that is a uh, frequent used op frequently used option. What the Kappa statistic does is it corrects for the frequency with which the disposition is scored and asks how much beyond chance 
uh, are these reviewers scoring the manuscript similarly? In other words, what percent of their agreement is beyond chance agreement? And your Kappa statistic for rejection among reviewers was 0.11. Listeners should know the scale is zero to one and one is good and 0.11 is not so good. It's terrible. So what you're saying in, in plain English is that when you send a manuscript out to peer reviewers, you ain't gonna get much agreement about whether or not it should be rejected. Right, and and that's one of the reasons we worked hard at uh, JGEM to identify at least three peer reviewers, and we relied on the expertise of our deputy editors so that they can interpret what they're getting back from the peer reviewers. Mm-hmm. And 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 what does this? What's your takeaway? Um, do you lose faith in peer review because of this, or or is it more nuanced than that? It, I think it's more nuanced than that. I would agree with you that it's like democracy. <laughs> uh, we struggled with how can we improve this process, and boy, it, it, there's not an easy fix to it. I see. One of the solutions in your paper was to focus more on the qualitative aspects of what they were saying, and um, sorry, the, the the specific aspects of what they were saying, and not that final binary decision of accept yep. or reject. Abs- and that's and that's what we do. What about um, that famous quote that um, uh, academic politics are the worst of all kinds of politics because the stakes are so low? Um, <laughs> I like that one. <laughs> did you feel as if there was uh, that you at times could see the academic politics behind the reviewers? Oh, yes. Often yes. the case. And yes. how do you handle that as an editor? Um, it, well, that's one of the reasons we had such a broad group of deputy editors, so that they had knowledge within their content area. and. They would often know, we know that there's disagreement between this particular author and that reviewer, and so would take their review with a grain of salt. I see. Yeah. And um, do you now have more sympathy for the editors, having been an editor? I do. I do. I And, and I totally understand why you end up revising manuscripts, uh, not once, not twice, sometimes three times before it and gets published. And why is that? Um, you know, trying to get the tone right. Um, you know, we spent a lot of time uh, working on uh, assuring that it's a fair portrayal of the results. Mm-hmm. You know, are, are the authors describing the limitations to their methods well enough mm-hmm. that people don't say this is the best thing since sliced bread? I see. What do, how does this add to the literature? I see. Um, and then, you know, just the language. I wanted to talk to you about another episode I, I discovered, which I thought was very interesting. This was um, an editorial that you wrote with Bill Tierney about uh, um, a provocative experience that happened with Dr. Uh, Few Berman, who is a very esteemed faculty member at Georgetown University. And here's what happened. This was in an era, I think, when we were beginning to move beyond Coumadin as an anticoagulant, a law, an oral uh, long-term anticoagulant, and there were some new anticoagulants coming down the pipe. Um, a commercial company that made one such anticoagulant uh, commissioned a medical education company to review the literature um, highlighting potential adverse interactions between Coumadin and herbal products. And I'll explain to the listener, you know, if you're making a new blood thinner, it would behoove you to sow the seed of doubt in the minds of 
providers that Coumadin is not a good blood thinner for some patients because presumably those patients could move to your blood thinner. So that's the, I think, the incentive for the company. So they got a medical education company to write this manuscript. And initially the company actually approached Dr. Few Berman to be the author of the manuscript. They really provided her a full manuscript. She was, quote, asked to edit it as she saw fit. Um, and then they said that, you know, we're going to submit this for you. Um, I think the terms of the deal were were quite simple. Quote, no compensation was offered to Dr. Few Berman. Her reward for putting her name on this manuscript would be the final publication. So they knew she'd get something out of it. She'd get a paper. And they would get um, the message they wanted out, out of this. I mean, this is my words, not mm-hmm. your words. Um, Ironically, uh, well, not ironically, she of course said no, um, and they found someone else to do to do the work, uh, to be the author, and that author submitted to JGIM, and that paper was sent to her as referee, and she brought it to the journal's attention that um, you know I'm an unusual sort of referee because I was previously asked to be the author of this paper. That is called corporate ghostwriting, and. Um, and you know, you 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 were one of the, I mean, one of the only times I think I've seen such a clear example described um, very clearly. Uh, but I happen to know of very similar examples in my experience, which I don't want to betray the confidence of people who've told me told me these tales. But this is not an unusual practice from what from what I understand. Um, is it problematic? It is problematic. Um, I always give pause when I see studies that are published where there's been outside writers Mm -hmm. that have written the draft of the manuscript. And And why is that? It it gives me pause because it means that the, the technically the the, the lead author is one step removed from interpretation of the actual data. Mm-hmm. And that sows all sorts of seeds of doubt and questions in my mind about the integrity of the data. Right. And if, if this was so important, why weren't the lead authors involved in drafting that manuscript? Right. I've had the experience of emailing for some projects we've done, some lead authors um, who said, you know what? Uh, don't ask me questions about this manuscript. I don't have the data and I don't know anything about it. You take it to the company. Uh, I've had the same thing. I've had the same thing where I've wanted to know more, and it concerns me greatly. And this uh, came early in our tenure as co-editors and raised all sorts of issues Mm -hmm. for us as editors because the person who had submitted uh, the manuscript to us was a junior faculty member. Clearly, uh, when I did some investigation about the individual, was at a at a point where was probably needing publications for promotion for and tenure and uh-huh. career advancement. And this particular company was preying on that need. And it was because of my interaction with the author. I, I mean, see. Uh, technically, when you pick up these integrity issues, you're supposed to report them to the university. Right. And given her setting, her university, it, it, it could have ended her career. I see. And, you know, we decided not to go there and instead bring the experience back to other journal editors, write this editorial, try to raise awareness that this is going on. I've heard um, people make the claim that we want medical writers because medical writers are known to convey the information 
uh, more accurately. I see you shaking your head now. Absolutely not. I know, but I've heard I, people make that claim. I, I yeah. read this manuscript before right. I pass it on to a deputy editor. The right. content is important. So many of our patients uh, take herbal supplements. Um, and it's important to know about drug-drug interactions between drugs and herbal supplements. Uh, so I thought important to a generalist audience, which was is our audience uh, for the Journal of General Internal Medicine. And I thought it was billed as a systematic review. I th- it wasn't a systematic review, but an important enough topic that I thought maybe with some work could be a good quality narrative mm-hmm. review. I see. Uh, because I knew that there weren't going to be randomized control trials of, topic, of these yeah. interactions. Uh, so pass it on to the deputy editor. You know, I guess um, I, I guess uh, I have to commend you. I think you showed a, a lot. You know, you handled it very thoughtfully. And um, and uh, uh, you know, th- when I see these kind this kind of behavior, it, I get very angry. Um, one of the things that I see a lot is um, these cancer drugs. Of course, the company has every interest to put out a favorable cost effectiveness analysis. And you know, cost effectiveness analysis—that's not a very—that's a very malleable type of work. You, you can change a few assumptions. You can bend that whichever direction you want. And I joked on the internet that when you see a cost effectiveness manuscript, the first author and the last author are senior academics at universities, and every middle author works for a consulting firm or the company or a medical ed- education company. Um, you know, red flag in the air. Be suspicious. Um, you know, maybe maybe that authors did not do that much, and they're literally just lending their credibility to it. Then I, I joked even further when you see a manuscript where they star four authors and say these authors contributed equally. Uh, the two authors in the prominent authorship positions are big name academics, and the other authors that quote contributed equally are like people who actually do this kind of work for a living. Um, you know, I suspect it's those other authors that did like the heavy lifting in this project. Um, I think there's two issues here. There's one, the issue of what are the empirical ramifications of this that perhaps some of the scientific literature, perhaps much of the scientific literature may be ghostwritten. Um, Is that good for knowledge, dissemination? How does that create bias? There's the other aspect of it, which is the, um, you know, no matter what the ramifications are, I, I I fear I grew up in a bygone era where I was always taught just, you know, you don't put your name on something if you didn't do the work. Uh, a grade school principal, um, that bothers me, that that ethic is being lost. Um, I, I agree completely that uh, I have that, I grew up with that same uh, ethic instilled in me uh, from the time I first started doing research. And I, I just get frustrated when I see that happening. I get frustrated. I get frustrated when I see it, when I read the paper, um, when I see that the majority of people tweeting about an article or putting it up on Facebook or commenting about it are literally just parroting the abstract back to me. Mm-hmm. And then, um, you know, I don't have the time to read every single article to the depth I like to read them. But on this podcast, I try to do a few for the listeners. Uh, I read the paper. I read the supplement. I open the protocol. I sometimes go to clinicaltrials.gov and try to fact check some things. And the more I do that, uh, you know, oh, and then the last thing I do is I pull it up on drugs at fda.gov and I read the scientific review, the statistical review. And the more I do these things, as I know you've done these things, uh, I get frustrated that lots of things are being left out. Lots of data is being selectively presented. (laughs) 
I wanted to ask you, uh, the last thing I wanted to ask you, I know our time is so limited. Um, there is a big push right now for real world evidence. And I've talked about it a little bit on this podcast, but the listener should get your opinion on this. Real world evidence should lead to drug approval. And I think at first glance, that sounds really nice because after all, who would want non-real evidence, you know, fake or, or uh, you know, laboratory evidence to lead to approval? Real evidence sounds so much better, real world evidence. Um, uh, but there are some pitfalls. Uh, there are some, some unintended consequences of these, this kind of action. When you have very costly drugs and devices come on market for one indication, and you want to use real-world evidence for a supplemental marketing authorization, um, what you're really saying is, listen up, community. If you want to use this product for this off-label purpose uh, and um, and get a real-world approval, you're going to have to use it off-label. That's how we'll build the real-world evidence. What that essentially does is it transfers the cost of running clinical trials from the manufacturer to the public purse, does it not? It it does. Uh, to the public and private purse, we all, we all pay for it either through our insurance and rising insurance rates, if it's not done in the context of Medicare and Medicaid, or through public health care, Medicare and Medicaid. But they have plenty of money. They can afford to subsidize the budgets of uh, law f- of uh, pharmaceutical companies. Oh, you've got to be kidding. <laughs> you've got to be kidding. And, and then it's even, in my view, even more egregious, because if you think about the populations that right. these two large health care programs serve, mm-hmm. so it's those who are less than a certain percent of the federal poverty level. Right. Um, and the more these programs are used to subsidize the research efforts of other wealthy groups, what that literally means is drawing often a different cut line and actually removing this service for many people. Uh, I, I agree. Or shifting what the resources from what might help them ultimately in terms of their health and right. well-being to a very expensive medication that they may or may not benefit from. Right. And 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 it's suboptimal. I mean, if you asked me to assess whether a new drug or device um, works for some purpose, the reason we do trials for that is that's actually a very optimal way to make the answer very quickly with a minimum number of people exposed to the drug, uh, often with a futility rule so that you'll halt it when it's not going the direction you want it to go. Um, but when you start using real-world data, you're really encouraging off-label rampant use of these costly products, uh, often at the expense of other cheaper things like blood pressure control mm-hmm. that really do have proven mm-hmm. benefit. And you're doing it in a very suboptimal way. It's probably the worst way to run a research agenda. I, I agree completely. And uh, you know, not only are you siphoning resources away from things that might actually work, um, the the example I'm thinking of in that instance is um, the use of uh, the direct acting antivirals for hepat- chronic hepatitis C in prison populations, mm-hmm. um, and the concern there is that uh, there's a high prevalence of people who inject drugs, um, and I'm thinking, gosh, you know, they're given this drug, twelve weeks. But you haven't addressed the fundamental issue with uh, the exposure risk. The exposure risk, mm-hmm. which is their injection drug use or their substance use disorder, and it would make more sense to put resources there treating only those people who are at greatest risk of liver-related outcomes, clinical outcomes. I see. Well, um, I want to. 
Go ahead. Uh, the the only other um, comment I was I was thinking about. Uh, actually, go ahead. No, no, question. Yeah. No, no, I, I've, I. I lost my train of thought. That's all right. Yeah. I, I, I lose it often on this podcast. Um, I, uh, I, I wanted to thank you so much, uh, Martha Garrity, for coming on our program, uh, for sharing your thoughts on a variety of issues. Um, we would love to have you back. Would you ever consider coming back on the plenary I session? I would thoroughly enjoy coming uh, back thank you and so much. talking and, with and you And another more. question. When, when you were told you were going to be giving the plenary session, is this, this is what you had in mind? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not so sure. <laughs> Knowing you, Fanai, I was like, it could be anything. It could be anything. Good. I like, to keep, I like to keep my guests guessing. Well, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for inviting me. You've been listening to Plenary Session. Plenary Session is a new podcast at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy. I've been your host, Vinay Prasad. If you like this show and you like this podcast, uh, please go to the iTunes store and give us five stars. Uh, It means a lot. Um, Follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session um, or send us an email at plenarysessionpodcast at gmail.com. If you have any thoughts, questions, topics you want to cover, let us know. We'd love to get some feedback. Uh, Plenary Session uh, owes a debt of gratitude to Kiana Klossner, uh, Audrey Tran, and Ian Straley.